0: Welcome, everyone, to Politics Express, the Postwriters' Politics Podcast. I'm your host, the Postwriters' Politics Editor, Lars Emerson, and this week we're talking about the situation in Ukraine. How did we get here? What's happening now? And what should we expect going forward? We will discuss all of the above, then we will end, of course, with our recurring In Our Lifetime segment. So let's dive in. (laughs) with me here to discuss is as always the post writers editor-in-chief michael levito hey mike hello and a special guest and friend of the site dan who is an expert in foreign policy with an emphasis on russia so that's pretty convenient good to have you dan (laughs) hello hello and uh yeah dan has been with me in vegas all week and we have been talking a lot about ukraine uh he's in the right place at the right wrong time (laughs) i guess uh how's uh how are you doing dan
1: um i'm doing all right Uh, a lot of excitement we've had on this trip uh kind of unexpected i was on the airplane over as everything kind of kicked off so as you said we've just been constantly talking about this for the last like week or so yeah
0: so we decided to kind of put put discussion into audio form with this podcast so let's let's get right into it let's start with this uh we'll start with you dan how how did we get to this point that we were at basically pre invasion where ukraine is outside of NATO, russian troops are staging on the border you know the invasion of crimea uh eight years before how did we get there
1: Yeah, so I think not not to get too much into the weeds here. Um, Obviously, Ukraine was formerly part of the Soviet Union. And I think kind of the modern history of what we're seeing now um, has been kind of a long arc since probably mid-century, mid-20th century. Uh, So at some point um, for internal Soviet kind of politics, Ukraine uh, got ousted. Um, and it became more of a, a semi-autonomous region uh, the Ukrainian SSR um, you have you have this being kind of a yeah just uh, generally a an independent and kind of more ethnocentric state as was prior where it was kind of more integrated within the, the greater Russian Empire uh, from this period you have Crimea uh, getting, Again, kind of gifted to the Ukrainian SSR as opposed to being part of Russia and then moving forward with the dissolution of the Soviet Union, then you have the emergence of obviously all these new Soviet republics becoming independent states. Um, Moving forward from that, then you you really have the emergence of a new security paradigm with these independent states then vying for what route they're going to take in the post-Soviet space. So you have countries uh, like Belarus who have traditionally stayed extremely close to both the Soviet Union and now the Russian Federation. And then you have uh, states like the Baltic states with Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, uh, definitely Poland and Ukraine kind of either erring on the side of the the Western uh, Alliance or kind of towing that line between We understand that Russia is a major player in the region, but we also kind of want to to move towards what Western democracies are um, presenting as an option. So so that's like a long – that's a long view. But, you know,
0: that gets us to – what do you think is like the turning point? Is it like 2013,
1: 2014? I think – Unfortunately, I'll I'll bring it bring it a bit more uh, present. But unfortunately, I think everything can kind of be tied into that long march towards kind of the Russian perspective on what very much what Eastern Europe actually means um, in relation to Russia. Uh, the, the current crisis with uh, 2014 and the annexation of Crimea, I would say, is kind of a culmination of the immediate post-Soviet um, kind of future that the the Russian Federation kind of set for itself. So you have acts of aggression along its periphery during this time. So you have the the, the big, I think, turning point in most kind of the Western consensus would be the 2008 Russian-Georgia war. And that kind of was a turning point where the West saw Russia kind of re-entering their traditional uh, space and really trying to implement a pro-Kremlin change in this area. Marching on from that, it kind of things kind of accelerated. So you have clearly uh, uh, Crimea and Ukraine itself was an opportunity for Russia to operate very much in the Eastern Europe. Uh, and they had access to the Black Sea quite heavily. So you have uh, a pro-Kremlin president in Ukraine uh, for many years immediately following Ukrainian independence. and. Kind of coinciding with uh, the Georgia conflict you have an emergence of uh, a revolutionary movement in Ukraine uh, that fomented um, I'll say peaceful transition um, obviously there's a bit of tension a bit of violence but more or less a peaceful kind of ousting of uh, Yanukovych uh, in Ukraine which then caused the Kremlin kind of to have that change in view going this has traditionally been a a sphere in which we operate quite comfortably to now we have a western leading uh, or a western leaning leader in ukraine and the paradigm again shifted towards going okay now ukraine is seriously considering nato membership seriously considering the eu and this is all within the span of i'd say roughly eight years between kind of this happening like roughly 2005 to the 2013 range of this political change in Ukraine, and then Russia really focusing, going, this is something that we, this is unacceptable for us to have happen. So
2: I I actually, um, so in in this sort of like narrative you've been discussing, it's, you you know, it's very much sort of um, Russian action we're discussing. I think that's what most of the reporting is focused on. But there are some people, I think, really on both sides of the aisle who have, talked about sort of the expansion of nato after the cold war into eastern europe in places like poland like the Balkan states, and like the former yugoslavia as something that also ratcheted up tension do you think that's a fair critique or is that kind of taking the focus away from who's russia who seems like more of a aggressor
1: yeah i think i think there's legitimacy in the argument i think that's something that Uh, Definitely NATO uh, and specifically the U.S. has struggled with kind of throughout this post-Soviet era is what does, A, what does NATO mean um, Mm -hmm. in this space where now the traditional kind of opponent is gone? Um, And also then what does this mean for Eastern Europe? So you have all these burgeoning democracies for the most part or ones that are kind of becoming more democratic. And... I think the argument's always been, how are are we as the US and we as NATO going to balance kind of giving this opportunity to countries who are yearning for Western involvement, um, but also kind of against the backdrop of Russia being staunchly against this expansion. So I I say it's, I think it's fair from a Russian perspective to to have some form of hesitancy about it. Um, But I think most of their, kind of concrete objections have been kind of mired in the traditional Russian and Soviet mentality of like this is naturally inherently out to get us whereas from the obviously from us being embedded in that Western perspective we can see quite clearly that NATO isn't planning to overthrow you know Vladimir Putin's Russia it's just not mm-hmm. in in the books it's not you know a long game we're playing um, it's always been about you know stability and to, and kind of that democratic you know notion of these are liberal democracies or states that are kind of moving that direction um so yeah i think it's it's a definitely a complicated balance that nato's been trying to navigate um
0: so, so i have kind of like a dark question this that this kind of implies and mike's question kind of gets at too is like is the only place where we could have stopped some what happened what is happening now where russia has now invaded was that in that 2005 to, like, 2013 window? Because, it, you know, if, if the U.S. puts troops in Ukraine or admits Ukraine into NATO in 2006, you have a very different situation.
1: So, just in, in terms of kind of mitigating the invasion itself that we're currently seeing. Um... I think it's I definitely think it's a difficult one I, I don't know if Ukraine realistically was ever kind of in the cards to be a, a fully fledged NATO member I don't I, I don't want to discount it um, anything can happen obviously and this is what we're seeing now is again kind of unprecedented in modern European history uh, well very modern European history but Ukraine due to its kind of Okay, like a good example is the Georgia conflict, right? Georgia, aspiring member in in or aspiring to be a member of NATO, um, seeking closer, you know, cooperation with the EU. All of those kind of things were in place, similar to Ukraine, and Russia made that play in 2008, saying, "No, this is a NATO country directly on our border. This is kind of unacceptable. It's not." It's more in our backyard for it being the, you know, the caucus region. Ukraine is even more of, I don't want to say like a crown jewel and Russian mentality, but ethnically, culturally, significantly more similar to the Russian people, has uh, definitely, you know, a deeper connection to the current Russian state than I think either the Baltics or Georgia traditionally have had. Um and I think with the, the with the Baltics being in NATO quite rapidly um, in relation to other Eastern European countries, I don't foresee, I don't see Ukraine really kind of getting out of this tragic caught in the middle situation that they're currently in. Uh, I, I don't think that it would be necessarily a hot conflict. Um, in the the manner that's kind of erupted but i i also don't think it would ever be clean cut because i don't know if nato in itself was ready to make that leap you know like like you're saying in that kind of sweet spot where there wasn't as much russian aggression i don't think nato was ready to kind of poke that bear in such a way (laughs) i get it (laughs)
2: yeah i I, I just 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 to clarify was because we talked about how in some ways, before twenty fourteen, Ukraine was a bit more of like a, a little more Russia Russia friendly. We, is the idea of them joining NATO kind of in that pre twenty fourteen period that just kind of like would never happen because they were so pro Russia, or is just the they just didn't meet sort of the criteria to join NATO? Uh,
1: definitely a mixture. Um, you had someone in Yanukovych. You had someone who was decidedly pro Kremlin. But mm-hmm. I think he was also cognizant enough of kind of the way that the people were, were moving and saying they wanted more EU cooperation. You mm-hmm. know, they had these options with the EU and NATO providing them with, you know, opportunities to integrate in, into the greater European kind of scheme of things. And I think that's where you found that really towing of the line. I don't think if Yanukovych didn't get ousted. The question of Ukraine being in NATO, I don't think would ever be a a serious um, endeavor. I think it might have been a kind of a delicate balance that was being played out by Yanukovych's regime, which was, you know, we're gonna we're gonna present this as an an option for the Ukrainian people, uh, but I don't think it would seriously be. uh, I don't think there was any serious consideration for it being implemented and like you know, obviously becoming a full member. State of NATO, and like you mentioned too, and you alluded to, the the fact of the matter is that with the Yanukovych regime as well, um, a lot of the tick boxes of you know NATO membership uh, probably weren't going to be met uh, regardless. Mm-hmm. Is
0: so I, you know I don't want to spend too much time on this whole like pre-staging because what actually matters is what's happening now. But the main figure I assume we're going to be talking about is Putin, who. You know, our our discussion so far is kind of focused on like, this is almost inevitable, or at least that is the thesis you are putting forth. And you've made a pretty compelling argument for why. Is that different if Putin is not the de facto leader of Russia for the entire 21st century? Like if there was a different leader there, would it change? Or would that same motivation like, oh, it's in our sphere, we're going to do it anyway, still
1: be there? I think an argument could be made that in an alternate Vladimir Putinless universe, um, yeah, I think the the ideal kind of in the imagination of the West, right after the Soviet Union collapsed, we were like, this is it, democracy's coming to Russia. We've like won. They're gonna liberalize. You know, everyone's gonna be just kind of joyously living together. Very much the optimist perspective on things. I think there, you know, you have like. Gorbachev in the 80s opening things up and you're moving into Yeltsin, all these different figures who are, generally speaking, quite liberal comparatively to Soviet leadership. Uh, so I, I think there, there could be an argument that if things moved in a different way, um, you may have gotten, yes, a, a more liberal figure. Um, I think most likely there would have been still the same hesitancy in terms of like Yeah, having that that Western border of Russia being fully integrated into EU and NATO and then Russia being the odd man out. I think that that is kind of an inherent defense posturing that wouldn't have gone away. I I do think that to see such a kind of a, a blatant attack on Ukraine's sovereignty, I think that's a I think in the current situation, that's not kind of unimaginable but i think it's definitely a a, definitely a culmination of what putin's foreign policy has been leading to um so i I think there could be a a strong argument to say things might have been different with a different leader okay so uh,
0: is there any like other major thing you'd add before you move into like okay russia has now invaded and where and where we are now is there something that you feel like most people don't know when they're Prognosticating or analyzing that situation. It's okay if not. I'm just. The mic, if you've got yeah. anything. <laughs> Any fun rush effect? <laughs> like, what's the thing everyone is not thinking of when they're like, oh, uh, duh?
1: I, th- I think, that f- to be honest, I think for the most part, most aspects of it have been parsed through. I think there needs to be kind of, if you want to look more broadly at things, I think the war on terror, um, again, this is very big picture, but the war on terror in the initial stages most definitely, um, the U.S. was occupied obviously with Iraq and Afghanistan and you know countless other kind of hot zones on the war on terror. And I think the general consensus among definitely U.S. policymakers is that things have been overlooked during this, you know, last we'll say 21 or 20 years with uh, the definitely Afghanistan conflict and Iraq. All of these things were kind of brushed under the rug. Um, Russia, you know, the, the long trend of it has been that Russia has been reemerging and kind of. Starting to you know gain a foothold back into its traditional areas, and I think that the the war on terror, a gave a, an opportunity for U.S. Russian cooperation, uh, definitely in Central Asia, um, and it kind of caused the U.S. to overlook what its traditional defense paradigm was, which was you know the Cold War and big state competition. So that's just something I think to take into account that. Um, The U.S. definitely, with its posturing, was taken aback uh, in the Obama years, and uh, it was kind of, with the Bush years, it was kind of, you know, starting in a position of going Russia's not an enemy, Russia, if anything, is a potential ally with terrorism, and to dramatically shift back into, okay, Russia is countering the U.S.'s interests, as well as NATO and Europeans.
0: Okay, so... Russia invades Ukraine on February 24th uh, In what is now the largest Conflict in Europe since World War II That's where we are now We're recording this On February 28th, a Monday uh, What uh how, how are we processing What's going on now? I mean, The last I saw is there were 500,000 Ukrainians fleeing the country uh, Anyone else have any Like fast facts about where we are? In the conflict this moment, uh, well, my understanding
2: is that there is now heavy shelling going on in Kharkiv, I believe is how you pronounce uh, the name, and it seems like Russian troops are trying to encircle Kiev, but they have not, as of this recording and as of my reading, uh, captured it. Um, and in fact, the the Western media narrative, at the very least, is that you know they're running into stiffer resistance than they anticipated um and uh have not really sort of acquitted themselves well as far as modern
0: militaries go yeah um, I, I, i've seen the number that it, like a few times that it's like one ukrainian is able to take out three russians i've seen that mm-hmm. ratio come up a few times um dan any like top level like Fast facts about this armed conflict in Europe, as we before
1: we get too detailed. (laughs) Yeah, I think things are definitely. um, I think it was either going to go one of two ways, and I think it was either going to go kind of a quick toppling, which I think would have been more of a surprise than what's happening now. I think most people, especially with the kind of the long warning that was in place, right? I mean, you had kind of a couple months of. The general public being kind of inundated with like Russia's planning to attack um, and I would probably make the argument that hopefully government and defense officials had even more lead time to that uh, so I, I do think it's a bit surprising how bogged down things have seemingly got in the last few days uh, again anything could happen there could be a potential breakout in the next few days that happens quite suddenly uh, but when you like what Mike was saying, when you see cities like Kharkiv in the, in the very easternmost portion of Ukraine, still after you know four days of conflict, the city has not fallen. And generally speaking, it seems to be that they are you know resisting quite well. Uh, that has to be kind of a glaring warning sign that this is going to be uh, a tougher battle than ideally what the Kremlin imagined.
2: You, you, you brought up this this kind of constant, um, this idea that it was very much in the media, you know, the Biden administration was very open with the Russians are massing troops at the Ukrainian border. You know, they might stage a false flag operation to um, justify an invasion. They're going to invade. You know, they were it seemed like they were being very open with the intelligence they were gathering and really not um, playing around. Do you think um, that was a prudent strategy? um because it, it seems like um yeah i'm just curious what what you thought of i guess the, the openness with that kind of intelligence you know yeah. not not that we're getting the nitty-gritty of what was happening but this idea of like because really when when uh um, i'm rambling a bit now but really when you know the biden administration was doing that there were lots of journalists who were saying well you know this is alarmism uh you know, we we've kind of seen some similar things happen in Iraq, where there were justifications to invade Iraq. Why would we not assume U.S. intelligence is doing a similar thing? Of course, U.S. intelligence, as far as I can tell, has been vindicated because of all of this. And I, I, I'm just curious what you made of that. The Biden administration sort of um, uh, the 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 warning signals they were throwing up before the actual invasion.
1: I I have no issue at all with it. Um, I think the further we kind of move along in this initial stage, I think the more this strategy that the Biden administration has taken has been uh, rather brilliantly executed. I, I think that it has done accomplished a few things, which was I think it prepared the general public of you know European nations and the United States to this is a not only a strong possibility but one that from our information sources seems to be imminent so i think the the posturing for that has created a political atmosphere domestically and you know the e- European Union countries NATO countries and the US to go okay this is something that is going to happen and to kind of get the gears going already for what the response was going to be because they're getting warmed up to the fact that okay a conflict is about to emerge we need to do something about this it's going to happen so getting that kind of political apparatus and that domestic support i think already going at such a, a an early stage to go this is what all the the factors are leading to i think that was brilliantly done um, and you can see the results of it already i think that how how swiftly uh nato NATO and European Union nations have agreed to sanctions on such a, a wide breadth of kind of actors, businesses. Everyone seems to be moving in such a, a, a strongly coordinated fashion, which I think, if you were a bit less transparent, um, you'd have like traditional holdout, holdouts, like you know the UK, Germany, even um, going. I think we should be a bit more cautious on how we're responding to this. Again different level to, than what has happened in the past with, like, the initial kind of Ukrainian conflict. Obviously, this is a full-scale invasion. Um, but I do I, I do think it has warmed everyone to the idea of this is going to happen and we need a strong response.
0: Well, and it let everyone kind of, like, project, right? And, and say, like, hey, if you do this, we're going to do this. It let kind of the yeah. entire relevant world do that. I, I mean, you, you mentioned Germany, who is... Uh, whose relationship with Russia the last few years has been uh, controversial, to say the least. But, you know, even they like were able to be like, well, if you're going to really do this, we are going to sanction you. Um, yeah. And we're going to pull out of, like, Nord Stream 2. Um, and then, you know, they did that hoping he would not <laughs> you know, invade, but now you've got this, this pretty broad coalition of people. And, and on the ground in Ukraine... Um, uh you know, Mike, you mentioned like the, the false flag thing. Um I mean the the, the it sounds the, the read I get is that Putin was not able to get away with that. Is like the, the Ukrainian soldiers were so disciplined that look, I, I fully thought someone was gonna just like shoot across the border, just some like random Ukrainian like guy, just like, hey, you're on my lawn.
1: Um
0: I, but they they were like so disciplined.
1: Yeah. I, I think Also, this is kind of the the this is a very twenty first century conflict so far, Um, and it's I'm glad to see that the U S. and the you know our NATO allies have kind of utilized what you know in the military sense would call the information domain so aggressively. Uh, The Russians are experts at you know misinformation uh, creating convoluting and uh, you know storylines that are a meant to confuse meant to offer false information and just generally impact public perception and i think by being so preemptive and aggressive by going we can we have a a laundry list of uh, items that the russians are attempting to do or in the middle of doing this is what they are and identifying those so uh, you know Aggressively, has really kind of stunted the opportunity for the Russian propaganda and Russian information uh, warfare to take hold in these places where you would think that there'd be more of an uh, an opportunity to gain some kind of you know favor among at least the general public. I mean, you had you had cases definitely where they're saying where they're. Uh, yeah, accusing the Ukrainians, like you were saying, Lars, of shelling indiscriminately into the separatist regions in Ukraine. And the Ukrainian government was saying, no, this isn't happening. The U.S. and NATO were saying, no, this isn't happening. So all of these, by being so upfront and so aggressive in pursuing kind of what what the layperson would call it, just like general kind of PR surrounding this conflict, I think the the U.S. has seized momentum and NATO and Europe has have seized that space um, and definitely taken what traditionally is, I'd say, a Russian positive, uh, generally speaking, in the information domain and making it uh, a beneficial space for us to operate in.
2: Uh, Yeah, so you mentioned the the sort of the info war of it all, the info war, maybe not a great (laughs) case, but uh, (laughs) the, the information aspect of it, the PR aspect of it. And what's interesting is, I think you're right, is there hasn't been, at least from what I've seen, not a lot of sort of Russian triumphalism you know, and their communications. And in fact, there have been lots of protests in Russia, which, you know, the popular perception is that that's a more risky thing to do in a place like Russia, where they kind of have a track record of imprisoning and in some cases murdering. Uh, liberating, Mike. <laughs> or, you know, uh, opponents of the government. Do you think this idea that there is a significant resistance to this war in Russia is is that? Do you think that it, that perspective is maybe a little overemphasized in the West, or do you think that there is actually something meaningful happening within within Russia itself?
1: Uh, I don't know if I would use the word meaningful as of yet, uh, but I, I definitely think something's happening. Uh, again, this is this is a situation. I think it was a brilliant move by Zelensky as well, uh, kind of in the initial stages to you know do an address directed to the Russian people going, you know, this is a sh- we are like kind of a shared people, right? We have this long history, we're not so similar, we're brothers and sisters, and kind of directly appealing to that public in, in a manner that was, I think, very effective. Because at the end of the day, I think the issue that you're going to run into is there's going to be a kind of a glaring question of why is this happening? Um, I think Ukraine is traditionally seen very closely aligned to Russia. Um, Maybe not so much politically, but definitely as a you know as an ethnic population and culturally, and then it's also just the, the, another question of you know what's the return on this because without it being a swift victory, um, I, I fail to see how when you start to have you know bodies of soldiers returning to Russia in a conflict against what would be probably in the grand scheme of things one of their closest uh, you know closest people. I think there's going to raise a lot of questions among the general population of going, okay, what is the purpose of what Vladimir Putin has essentially started? Um, and that's going to be a difficult a, dif- a difficult thing to step back from now that things are moving in such a hot way.
0: So, so Zelensky's... I'll push back a, a little bit about Zelensky's address in Russian. I think it was a good political move not in terms of like i i I guess this is my through line is it has it has been uh enlightening how in tune many of these world leaders are with their own bases um biden you know drew a very famous red line of sand it's like we're not going to put troops in ukraine but we are going to do these sanctions both things that are overwhelmingly like popular in america uh zelensky's message may have been like in russian and to russia Two russians but the sense i get is i mean he knew it was not going to be like broadcast on, yeah on yeah. rt man like he it, it was very much an appeal like to the world like i saw that yeah, clip yeah. more than any russian ever did right <laughs> um and i, I mean d- d- does putin know his people is i guess where i'm going if we're comparing like the leadership styles of zelensky and putin is the, the i'm you know i'm I, the kind of narrative that's been building for the last few weeks is like Putin may have made a mistake that he yeah. has no good way out of and i guess that's where i'm trying to go go here um is this going to work <laughs> what like this whole <laughs> it doesn't seem to be like going well i don't know i don't know well we can open the <throat> conversation up a little it,
1: bit. i i think to touch on kind of at least for lack of a better term, just the popularity of this as a as a move, I think I I think it's kind of a a twofold thing. I think there's usually an an underestimation of kind of what dissident groups and kind of what effect they have and how widespread they are. Uh, Russia traditionally very locked off. You know, dissent is not you know something that can freely happen. Right. Um, but I, I think that. At the end of the day, Russia has been in turmoil for quite a few years now. I think you have repeated, if not solely, kind of for the Western, uh, you know, viewers or Western public, you still have domestic leaders like Navalny, who have very famously suffered, you know, consequences at just for purely saying. I'm having a democratic, you know, I'm trying to start a democratic movement. And these people are still quite popular and well-known in Russia. So I, I, think, I think the kind of back and forth you have in the access to information, specifically with this Ukraine conflict, it's not like it's, you know, the, the Russian invasion of Afghanistan in the 80s, right? It's not like, this isn't far removed. These are people who traditionally have been migrating Across borders to work, they have families and relatives that are, you know, both in Russia and Ukraine. They're very heavily integrated states, um, for the most part, even since you know the initial conflict in 2014. So I think the opportunity and the the exchange of that kind of information and dissent and what's actually happening on the ground is going to be a lot more potent with this Ukrainian conflict than perhaps traditionally has been with like the, even the Georgian conflict or you know Afghanistan in the 80s so
0: if you are Putin right now are you happy <laughs> I, I don't I don't get this you know we, we've 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 mentioned all these reasons that he probably should not be happy they have not managed to capture any city particularly quickly or any major city it sounds like more of his troops are certainly dying Than Ukrainians, the Ukrainians are putting up much more of a fight, and he may now be in an Afghanistan like 2.0. Right? It's like Ukraine is sort of the Afghanistan of Europe. It's a a somewhat ungovernable country that spans like this giant space uh, where everyone has a lot of guns and motivation to defend their families and their home villages. Um, I, I. i don't know mike do you get the we, impression yeah, we can go the table on this one <laughs> do i
2: do i do i think he's happy i mean i don't know that <laughs> i don't know that many happy people decide to invade <laughs> right. other countries um i i think that i i you know i i think i can't imagine that he would not be frustrated right you know um it has, because, because and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, because you know more about this than I do. It seems like, and I, I, tweet, I actually tweeted this out. I was just like, there needs to be like a long German word for an action that you take to try and convince, to try and prevent something from happening that then only reinforces why that thing you want to stop from happening was so important in the first place, right? Like, he cannot be happy that... Um, this seems to have just strengthened zelensky and ukraine's resolve to join the eu and nato he cannot be happy that finland seems like they want to be joining nato and not only that have been supplying weapons and supplies to the ukrainians he cannot be happy that even kosovo small as it is now wants a permanent united states military base and wants to join nato it really seems like he has only made nato a more popular idea in these countries that were not formed per- in nato you also cannot be happy that germany is now recommitting they're, they're raising more money in their you know they were officially kind of like a pacifist uh, state is my understanding and now they're recommitting to building up their military again it seems I mean, like
1: switzerland they, they made switzerland go non-neutral for this exactly. conflict.
2: yeah um you know i it i i again i i'm not i'm not gonna try and read putin's mind because i don't speak russian because i <laughs> literally can't physically do that but i I, well, I i get the sense that this was he he was looking for a pr win. he was looking to flex some russian muscle and it has just kind of fallen flat thus far and may only cause more problems for him in the long run
1: do we
0: all kind of agree that no matter what he was going to invade I, I feel like that was not the prevailing, like, take in America for a long time. But now now it's actually kind of – it doesn't make a lot of sense that he wasn't going to at any point. Like, maybe there was an off-ramp somewhere if, like, Biden and someone had come out and been like, oh, Ukraine is gone. You can have – like, maybe you wouldn't do anything. But, I mean, is – was there really, like, any chance of him not eventually doing exactly what he did?
1: regardless of I, if it made him <laughs> happy
0: or not i mean i, I think
1: yeah I, I think there is definitely a few factors that um would have potentially influenced that that you touched on like again if i i, I don't necessarily agree if the west was like nato's out of the picture for you if Putin i would have been happy,
0: biden caused this war dan yeah.
1: <laughs> I, I don't I don't foresee that if they were just like you know what Russia you can have it if that would have even kind of you know hit, touched on what Putin's ultimate kind of vision <laughs> is for Eastern Europe right like he it's not like only okay a, then like, yeah <laughs> yeah like, it's it's not only a a security thing uh, I think Putin's been very clear um, for a very long time of what his view is generally speaking on the collapse of the Soviet Union and what what this has meant for the Russian people, right? So I think regardless of it, quote, unquote, you know, Putin's declared Ukraine's, you know, a a massive security risk, they might get their nuclear weapons, but all these kind of hyperbolic and I think from our perspective, just ridiculous statements that we're like, we can kind of discard as unrealistic. I think all that posturing aside, Putin's vision for what Eastern Europe and, you know, Ukraine and Belarus, what that is, is very much a, you know, strong tie and, you know, a central ownership of these states as kind of, you know, vassal states. That was like how it was in the Soviet Union time.
2: Yeah. It, 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 it what, it, you know, just, just as granted, not a, not a Russia expert expert like Dan, but somebody who, you know, uh, knows a bit about politics and, and follows it closely like to me the very telling part of like his justification for going to war was that he wanted to demilitarize and denazify ukraine right you don't i i don't feel like you have that language in a statement unless you were going to do it anyway in a sense right because you know i i understand that there are there are far right elements in ukraine and that you know they may be involved in fighting in places like Donetsk and Luhansk, but um, the idea that this is a Nazi regime um, that is planning on, you know, sort of invading its much larger neighbor. <laughs> I think that that seems pretty easy to disprove <laughs> and, and it really just kind of, to me, it, it almost just seems like his version of Iraq has WMDs at this point, right? Yeah, It's kind of how, how, how I feel about it. At least.
1: I think there's something to be told, too, as well with the, the posturing that's taken place since, you know, right? Like... Once this pro-Kremlin regime was toppled, in a sense, in Ukraine, and Mm -hmm. the kind of the floodgates of Westernization were opened, um, yeah, very aggressive maneuvers. Once that kind of became apparent, of this is how things are going: the the seizure of Crimea, the the yeah, the opening of conflict in these Eastern regions. Mm -hmm. These are not things that are kind of taken lightly Crimea in itself obviously very strategic but funding and promoting a low-grade conflict in eastern ukraine there's not much there's not much benefit there except to harden the resolve of the the average ukrainian to go this is wrong and very obviously wrong Mm -hmm. so i think kind of you know and then that coincided as well with you know cyber attacks on Ukraine, they, there seems to be now looking, obviously hindsight 2020, a classic example, you can see kind of a natural probing of maybe not, you know, we're set on invading Ukraine. Um, there could have been some, you know, different circumstances, maybe a, a pro Kremlin regime reemerge, you know, they got their candidate and they got their, their ally in there. But looking back now, you can very clearly see Kind of aggressive posturing and probing of what this would mean if we were to take kinetic if we were to make this an active war how we'd go about doing it and seeing how this response has been um, by the ukrainian government and how much they can kind of get away with with the general kind of western world mm-hmm.
2: and i i do have lars kind of alluded to it earlier but um you know and i feel like it's a very american thing to say all right let's talk about this war happening thousands of miles away and what does it mean for us but um i am curious you know uh there there was this idea that the trump administration was very close to putin and that trump was very close to putin and um he said uh, at cpac the other day that were not for the rigged 2020 election <laughs> that uh this war would never happen I I think it seems like we agree that the invasion is going to happen anyway. Do you think there was a meaningful shift in sort of the Trump administration's approach to Ukraine and Russia and Biden administration's approach to Ukraine and Russia? Or was or has these sort of almost centuries long U.S.-Russia rivalry just always kind of been frozen in the state of conflict?
1: Yeah, I I don't necessarily know. I think regardless of who was in. The presidency, right? If Trump got reelected, I think the only real question mark that we can comfortably say would be be around. So it would be what the response would be. I think mm-hmm. the animosity, and I think that's something where you really kind of see the not well. I want to say hopefully the naivete of the Trump administration, um, mm-hmm. and not some you know malicious ulterior plan, but the naivete of going. We can reset Russian relations in in, a, mm-hmm. in such a meaningful way where we're not adversaries. Um, I think obviously most in the the U.S. kind of policy maker community would go, yeah. Hopefully one day Russia can be a friend, can be a partner. Uh, but I think it definitely is foolish to go. Things would be potentially dramatically different if like Trump was still president or if Trump wasn't president. I mm-hmm. think that the the general trend of Uh, you know, Putin's Russia has been one of bullishness. It has been one of, you know, we need to recapture, you know, for lack of a better phrase, a very much a make Russia great again. And that's a Mm -hmm. very real kind of perspective that that Putin's held. So I don't necessarily think our domestic politics um, would significantly alter the Russian objective here. Um, Mm -hmm. Did it maybe influence how they went about it? Sure. But the ultimate goal, I think, would remain the same.
0: Well, I almost wonder if there's, like, a madman theory element to, like, the Trump administration's, like, approach. Madman theory being this, like, mostly associated with Richard Nixon, where it's just, like, people thought he was, like, crazy and, like, yeah. volatile and, like, wouldn't act rationally. And, therefore, like, he could drop a nuke at any moment if someone, like, messed yeah. with anything. Um, it's... I believe it's been, like, largely, like, kind of debunked, but, like, you can see the appeal in, like, certain situations. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe you had something like that with I, Trump, whereas Biden is, like, a very, like, yeah. we're gonna do this in three years, and that'll be good.
1: <laughs> I, I definitely I, I definitely wouldn't discount it. Um, I think very much how I think you have kind of official accounts of Chinese officials going, we don't know how to operate in this sphere, very much of a confusing, like things are just, they don't add up in what we traditionally see with US-China relations. I think that could have been uh, a potential concern, but I don't think at this stage, um, looking at how the response has been by the US and its allies thus far, I don't think anyone would go, any reasonable kind of perspective would go if the Trump administration was around in 2020 um, and this was happening, I, I don't think you'd get such a, a well-coordinated international response uh, purely because of That's definitely true. what the Trump administration meant towards the European allies. Um, definitely a lot more animosity and very disjointed. So I think that the, the response would be quite different, to say the least.
0: Yeah. So as we wrap up this recording, how... Um How does this end for Ukraine, for Russia and, uh, for
1: the world? Mike, do you want to take (laughs) Yeah, Mike, tell us how this is going to end. You'd like to go first.
2: (laughs) Um, I don't know how it ends. Um, I, it, it seems to me (laughs) I'm very out of my depth here, but (laughs) I, I'll just say I have a hard time believing that, um, Ukrainian resistance can last forever. Um, I would think there's a breaking point eventually. Um, however, I do not think that really translate into Russia saying, oh, look, we finally did it. We won this war. Um, I think you get more of a quagmire situation. And I think it, it, it you know, it, uh, it, it leads us down the road to probably expansion of NATO. Um, I, I don't really, you know, but I, I guess, and that's another question I kind of have for you, Dan, is that we didn't bring this up, but Vladimir Putin did put his Russia's nuclear forces on alert. I believe it was yesterday. Um, the, uh, the United States government did not do the same. They did not moved to DEFCON three, and I guess that's kind of the question: is what is the nuclear risk of what's going on now, and would, and Putin's alluded to this: would sort of an expansion of NATO, not necessarily to Ukraine, but to a place like Finland. With with that with that ratchet up tension so much that you know the sort of nuclear clock takes takes ever further to, mid- to midnight.
1: Oh geez, <laughs> I, 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 you know, obviously something. I hope and pray that there's no uh, uh, no nuclear threat besides what the posturing has been by um, mm-hmm. obviously the Russian Federation. I think that my perspective on it is that. That is all it is. It's just posturing to go, you know what, this is a conflict they're doubling down on and going, this isn't one we're going to back out of. This is one that we're seriously devoting resources to um, to see how uh, to circle back to kind of Lars's uh, question here. How does it end? I think if I was Vladimir Putin kind of to answer the question of am I happy? I think it would be a resounding no. I, I don't foresee any eventuality uh, that this is gonna end up with Russia in a better spot than it was. Um, Merely by the fact that it's gonna harden resistance to Russia's actions in the future. Uh, Like you alluded to, Mike, about potentially expanding NATO. Um, You have all these countries that were more than content to kind of sit this fight out, now firmly aligning with, okay, Russia has acted aggressively. This is something that we can't stand for. So I think regardless of if Ukraine falls or does not fall or even how quickly that happens, I think what you have now is the reemergence of a, a, a stronger Cold War uh, you know, security paradigm in Europe. I think you're gonna very much have countries now who go, okay, this has happened right next to us now. This isn't a joke anymore. This isn't like a, a potential threat. The threat is there. It is very real and uh, to the credit of you know eastern european countries like the baltics and poland who have kind of been going this threat never went away this threat never went away i think now rest the rest of europe and definitely the u.s has gone okay the things have changed and this is where we're at now and all of those kind of perspectives are very much not in a you know not in a favorable light for what russia is trying to accomplish
0: so Dan you and I in the car yesterday I was kind of uh mentioning this how and to go full circle to kind of actually where we started when you're talking about like uh why Russia felt emboldened in like 20 years of like terrible decisions by the U.S. basically it's like they just got bogged down in these spores that they shouldn't have been fighting and distracted by everything from a financial crisis to a recession to a, a Donald Trump presidency and wars in afghanistan and iraq um it 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 does this almost feels like um it's now like the bad guys are having some bad luck if we're saying like america (laughs) is the good guy in this conflict and it's like okay now putin has just made a mistake that may end up like hurting his for like russian policy for like 20 (laughs) years um, or I mean, longer. I, I don't see like a significant recovery without Putin. Putin may also be on the verge of death, based on some theories I yes. read that are not like reputable, but like people got people got
1: thoughts about. Him. Yeah, there's definite thoughts. So
0: he's he's certainly looking a little worse for wear.
1: Um, I mean, he's also what like seventy or so years old. He's Maybe he's had old. some work done. He's definitely had some work yeah. done.
0: Um, but I
1: don't know. Maybe there
0: is something like that maybe it was just time for another world power to like trip over itself
1: u.s u.s took yeah. the, the last 20 years and it's someone else's <laughs> turn i think if you're the u.s right now you're yeah you're maybe breathing in the most like you know realistic way you're you're breathing a sigh of relief going thank god this you know we kind of handled ourselves and we haven't stumbled into something of this magnitude because I, I do think um in all seriousness that this is a this is a very significant development and I it's not gonna be easy to step back from this in a meaningful way for some time for Russia. Russia's definitely regardless of how kind of quickly or limited they thought this might go, I think they very much have, by, you know, bad luck or design, have fallen fully into whatever comes next.
0: Is there I, I guess before we end our, our discussion is there any word of hope for some I mean we now focus mostly on Russia and the US if you are in Ukraine right now what what hope is there for you because sure this may work out fine for the US uh, it may not work out so fine if you are living in uh, Kiev right now
1: um, It sounds like we think we've yeah. got a
0: fighting chance
1: I, I, yeah, I, I think they're again. Um, I don't think I, any of us are in a position to kind of assess the military situation to such a high degree. But I would say that from all accounts that are you know open source and public right now, um, the Ukrainians are holding and they're holding you know quite well. I think um, yeah, I think regardless to what happens. Not to be too much of a pessimist here, I, I think it's going to definitely be a a long few years I'll say regardless of the outcome uh, if fighting continues for a significant amount of time or even if you know a, a puppet regime is implemented that's pro-Kremlin I think you're definitely gonna see a, a shift um, in, in what life means as a Ukrainian unfortunately um, I think the one kind of point of I think optimism you can take from it though is that you know, the West and the international community are firmly aligned behind this fight. Um, and obviously, there are the, the, the politics of how far they're willing to go. But um, in terms of a, a battle right now, I think you have to be at least comfortable with, with what the West is doing to support you. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of things that they're doing that will significantly bolster what Ukraine can accomplish in this battle
0: all right thank you dan so before we wrap up we'll end this episode with our recurring in our lifetime segment you boys ready for this one the last time <laughs> will there be a land
2: war in europe wait a minute yeah yeah I, weirdo, I plan that
0: one. um the last time the united states congress has declared war was in 1942 during world war ii will the united states ever declare war in our lifetime Mm.
2: i'll go first yeah um i think and i could make an ass of myself in front of the the ir guy but um my my assumption is yes and it's because i think what we've seen and it's happened very very gradually almost glacially is this um sort of idea that the president can order troops uh where he wants when he wants them to like you know actually go into battle it feels like we're retreating from that a little bit right like there are efforts like i don't is the AUMF still um a thing has that been repealed yet i actually don't know i should have googled that first
0: um, I, I do not believe it has been repealed yet it right it's still, still active yeah 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 it's been worked um, on
2: yeah and it it, it, i i think that um you know and who knows maybe the sort of you know this post post cold war order we're about to enter (laughs) will change things um but it seems like uh certainly the mood of the public is that there is a bit there there has been a little bit of a shift towards um frankly isolationism to some degree right um and i think that in order uh i, I think that i I, I, am, I am i unfortunately think there will probably be some kind of war in my lifetime that the us is involved in again and i but i think it will have to go through a more formal process i don't know that future presidents will necessarily have the latitude they did um basically from like vietnam to you know the war in iraq
0: dan you agree disagree
1: I, I agree and I disagree. Uh, to be <laughs> slightly, to, to be slightly contrarian, I'm going to mm-hmm. go with no. Um, <laughs> to be slightly for, contrarian, I'll say no. To be to be fully contrarian, no. But yeah. my reasoning, my, my reasoning is a bit of a hybrid. I I do agree with Mike uh, on most of his points, but I I don't foresee, I don't foresee Congress, or to be honest, the U.S. being in a position where it's like what what you imagine to be you know the traditional the Congress of the United States is we're declaring war on you know whatever country that that may be I do think that with the clawing back from the AUMF I do think that's going to be repealed and I I do think what we're going to come into is a situation where there will be conflict zones and what you'll maybe get is more a more strict um, use of military force authorization Um, I don't necessarily foresee it being such a kind of, for lack of a better word, such a like parade of like, yes, we are formally declaring war. Mm -hmm. I think it'll very much be a Congress is authorizing the use of military force, but this time it is in relation to this conflict. Um, I I still struggle with, as we pivot out of this kind of transnational uh, terrorist driven security paradigm we've been in and in back into this more traditional big power sphere. Uh, I, I don't necessarily foresee that kind of traditional large state-on-state action being uh, a risk at least in our lifetime. I think it's very much going to be a hybrid situation of you know smaller states that are either failing or come under attack then get into a, a very vietnam-esque and afghanistan-esque situation of large powers playing into that y-
0: yes I, I think i'm more inclined to agree with you dan uh, I, I sort of think like it's worked i mean actually has not worked <laughs> most of these wars have not been like <laughs> ideal for the u.s um but it's like worked well enough that like we're we've gotten into conflicts without a declaration of war, and just the nature of conflict is so much messier than it was back in the nineteen forties. It feels very arbitrary, they, to right? And when the Constitution go. was was you know composed and drafted, yeah. Um, but you know, I definitely agree. I definitely agree with Mike too, though, that we're definitely going to scale back some of this stuff. The, the moment, momentum is there; it's just Congress takes, you know forever the question i want to pose to mike now is we are in we remain in three military conflicts mike we're in yemen uh uh somalia and um i wrote this down somewhere oh syria mm-hmm. um who are we declaring war against mike <laughs> what's <gonna> hey happen? <laughs> you said in our lifetime no, let's let's, let's hope and pray I live to like at least 80 yeah
2: um I'm just kidding. I, you know, I don't know.
0: It, maybe, maybe, maybe something weird happens with Venezuela or something. Well, I don't so, know. <laughs> so that's. I was trying to tie you and Dan's thing together. North like, Korea, games, right? It's not going to be like a, a big power. I think it's going to be like right, a very yeah. small
2: power. Yeah. It's like, oh, no.
0: they they messed with the wrong battleship that no. one day. No, I don't think we're going to clear
2: war against Russia.
0: Right. But you know, um,
2: you know, I don't know. Maybe maybe maybe. The, maybe uh, you know, Cuba. one of one of the next Kims to take office in North Korea, you know, gets gets a little a little uh, a little feisty, and we, we have to do something about it. But
0: oh, good, it's been an episode about feisty <laughs> leaders. But we <laughs> we will end with that. Uh, thank you for listening, everyone. Let us know what you think on on Twitter, uh, or you can find and follow us at the Post Writer there, or you can email us at at com. We love hearing from you, so come chat with us or suggest some topics for us to unpack. We are, of course, a Post Writer podcast brought to you by ThePostWriter.com. You can check out stuff we work on, things we've written, our other podcasts, and more over there. Uh, my thanks to both Mike and Dan for joining. Thanks, guys.
1: Thank, Thank you, you for having me.
0: And, uh, you know, our thoughts go out to the people of Ukraine.